in your Bibles um, to 1 Timothy. And we uh, finished actually chapter 1 with a sermon titled, Fight the Good Fight. And then if you were paying attention last week, Pastor Chris came with the sermon title called, Fight the Good Fight. <laughs> but actually, I was okay with that. When we talked, I said, no, 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 keep that, because his Fight the Good Fight was from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And in that chapter, Paul was referring to his own fight, and it's at the end of his life. He's looking back, and he says, I have fought the good fight. And in our chapter here, Paul is writing to Timothy, a young, timid pastor, and he's encouraging him to fight the good fight, to wage the good uh, warfare. And Paul has been charging him to stand up for the truth, to not allow any other um, uh, doctrine other than sound biblical doctrine to be taught there. And, um, and Paul just began with that charge to him, but now he's going to get to the purpose of the letter. If you remember, the purpose is found in chapter 3, verses 5, verse 15. It's about our conduct, isn't it? He's I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. There is a conduct becoming of believers. There is a certain way that we should conduct ourselves, the which way should we should live, in which the unbelieving outside world should look upon us and they should see Christ. They should see hope. They should see joy. And I just wonder how many churches you walk into today where you see any of that. I'll tell you, um, I saw all of that, Clear Spring. It was just a joyous church. It was, everyone was happy to, to worship. There was love um, and great, great time together in worship. And I had the ple pleasure to preach there as well, and was grateful um, for that. But Paul here is going to begin to address the conduct of believers. And if you were to go and guess what the top priority would be, where would you start? Where would you say this is the number one priority of uh, the church? I want you to see what he addresses to begin with. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Remember, this is about church uh, conduct. And if you're to be about anything, he says, I want you to be about prayer. I think you could probably walk into many churches today just by visiting, and you would probably see what they prioritize just by um, what, you've, what you witness there. You might see a church that has very fancy facilities and maybe elaborate decorations, and you would know that their priority is for their their facility, their building. You might see churches that have a, a giant elaborate stage with um, lighting rigs and smoke machines and all of that. I remember I, I, I was talking to a couple and they, I said, oh, you got a church. They'll tell me about your church. And the only thing they had to say about their church was that they had a new fancy lighting rig. And so I knew right away, it's like, okay, so for you, the priority is experience. We want to we create an experience that people leave with. Well, I had an experience. Maybe it's uh, elaborate um, worship, big, big stage of many musicians, and so and, and worship is great. And there's a lot of worship, 45-minute worship set, and you would say they prioritize worship. And for many people know Calvary Chapel, come into Calvary Chapel, you could leave today and leave, leave anytime probably and say, you know what they really prioritize? They prioritize the preaching of the word, and we do. We put a big emphasis on expository preaching of, of God's word. It's absolutely necessary uh, for us, but it's a top priority. It's not the priority. We have made an effort to include, you've noticed I'm sure over the past few years, to include more prayer in our services. We, we, we have prayer from up here four or five times in any given service, 
But many weeks, we have corporate prayer. We just break up into groups wherever we are, and we, we pray. And maybe if you're new with us and you've come for a few weeks, you might be going, well, I've never seen that happen. But, you know, last week we had a guest team here, and so we had a, we had a um, uh, what was it? Um, he gave a testimony, right? A testimony instead. Or if it's communion weekend, we'll have communion instead because that takes up that extra uh, time. But the rest of the services, usually we try to give a, a time for corporate prayer. You might have noticed that we skipped that time earlier today. Uh, that's because we're not skipping it. We're going to do it at the end. So wait for that. But you know what? Even though we didn't have corporate prayer, that's not Paul's point. The, the, the church should be about prayer. In fact, I walked around the room last, last week after the service, and I kept kind of looking at group. There were people praying all over. I, I kept eyeing Chris, and I, who's talking to Chris now? Because then I was like, oh, he's in trouble. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, that, that didn't enter my mind but once. But um, I, I, I looked over there, and you know what? I caught him talking to people and then praying with the same people. You know, no doubt they brought something up, and he said, oh, you know, let's pray about that. That's the people of prayer. In fact, we took the team to City Center on Monday, and we, um, we had a time at the Cardiff Castle. We took them there, and then we took them to the Cardiff Market for lunch. And as we were fellowshipping and eating, I, I looked over, and there was Chris and Kristen praying together. I know that they had um, their oldest daughter, Brianna, was having a, a minor surgery in the States. And so no doubt they, they said, oh, she's going to have her surgery soon. Let's, let's pray. And they just did it right uh, there. We're to be a, a people of prayer, and we're to put priority on prayer, praying all the time, because that's where Paul places it. Now, think about this. The church, the birth of the church came about by prayer. Now, you say, what are you talking about? Well, obviously, Jesus brought the church into existence, but it was born out of prayer. We remember Jesus, after he rose from the dead and, um, and then met his disciples, he ascended into heaven. He told them to wait around in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, didn't he? And what were they doing in Jerusalem? They weren't just sitting there, you know, playing cards, going to the pool hall, having drinks. What were they were doing? It says this in Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. What they were doing was praying. And they were praying, and that continued all the way until the Holy Spirit came. And then they continued in prayer. That was the start of the church. And so today we're going to look at this, that, that it's the priority of prayer. Prayer is the top priority for the church. And we're going to look at chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. I'll read those now, and you can follow along. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let me pray. God, we just pray for your blessing upon our time in your word this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today to illuminate truth to our hearts and to our minds, Lord, that we would be able to apply these truths to our lives, that we might see the importance of prayer. I don't think I've ever met a believer who has said they pray just enough. We all could pray some more. And so I just pray, Lord, that you challenge us with this today, that we would 
Seek your truth that our hearts will be open to what you have to teach us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, from this passage, I think we're going to see what um, a couple things about prayer. What prayer should be, and then we'll see as a result what prayer actually is. So what prayer should be, beginning in verse 1 here, you're going to see that prayer should be first place. Prayer should be absolutely first place. There in verse 1, therefore I exhort first, he says, first of all. First, proton, means uh, has a couple meanings. First can mean first chronologically, okay? So the first order of something in time. And first can also mean the importance or rank. And I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think it's both things here because many time those, times those things go hand in hand. And it certainly is true of Jesus. Jesus prayed often in the early hours of the morning so that it would be first place in his life, first place in his day. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says this, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, whew, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Why the early hour? Why the solitary place? So there were no distractions. It is such a beautiful thing when you can go and have complete quiet and stillness before the Lord in this busy, hectic world. I'm sure for those in the 24-hour prayer that we've done a couple times who had those early hours in the morning, that was a, a uniquely powerful time, a uniquely precious time. I, I had an early-ish morning the first time. The second time, my, my wife and I were right smack dab in the middle of the afternoon, and it was, it was sweet. It was wonderful. But the point here is that Jesus took time out of his very busy schedule to go in the morning to make sure that he had prayer undistracted, unhindered. To rise up early and to give first place to prayer means it's the first thing you do. You give this to the Lord. Let's face it. If we don't get our prayer time and Bible reading in in the morning, it's very difficult to fit it in later. It, you, it usually gets pushed aside. And then you kind of have to make it up um, the next day. It's difficult. Jesus often prayed early in the morning, but not only did he often pray in the first place in the morning, but he, he gave it first place even in, in terms of importance. He prayed all the time. In fact, he prayed so much, the disciples took note of it. And they said, could you show us how to pray? Because think about it then. I mean, prayer was a lot more formalized. You'd pray going into the synagogue. You'd pray going into the temple and the Song of Ascent. You'd pray in these sort of settings. But Jesus was just going off and talking to the Father. They're like, well, I didn't I know I could just go talk to the Father. And Jesus did it all the time. In Luke 11, 1, it says this, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Lord, you need to show us how to do that. And let's face it also, no, no one here is busier than Jesus was. Jesus worked all day long. He served, served people all day long, and yet he made time to pray. And I was thinking back about prayer and the, the sermon that Rob gave in the middle of the summer, Prayer and the Believer, and he did such a great job on that. And at the end of that, you might remember, he, he sort of gave some common excuses that we, we make, reasons for not praying, and one of them was we don't have time, yet we all have the same amount of time in the day. It's the making of the time. That's it. It's make time. Make time. Jesus made time. He woke up before, before it was light outside. And let's face it. If it, you're waking up before it's light and before you have coffee, you need prayer. Because 
In fact, you better pray before you meet your, your wife or your husband or your roommate or something. <laughs> it ain't pretty, is it? We, we, we need to make time to pray. The other reason is that we often, I think, not, we wouldn't intentionally say this, but when we don't pray, what we say is we don't need to. Oh, I don't need to pray. I can get through this day. When, hold on, Jesus needed to pray. And if Jesus needed to pray, boy, the, do I need to pray. Prayer is so important. I think it was Charles Spurgeon. He said, a, a prayerful church is a powerful church. There's great power in prayer. Why? Because we are showing our dependency upon God. We're taking it to him. I need you. We need you. We can't do anything without you. Prayer must be first for all of us. And what's great about this little section here is Paul isn't charging Timothy like he did earlier, commanding him, make sure you pray. I command you to pray. No, it says here, I exhort you. It's, it's encourage. Um, it's, it's like he's coming along, this young man says, you know, let me just encourage you to prioritize prayer in your life. And let me encourage you to model that for others. And that will be so important for the church here. And I'm going to encourage you to encourage them to pray. Put it, put it first. It's an encouraging thing. It's not a command. A lot of times I think we take commands and it's a burdensome thing. It's a yoke and I've got to carry this burden. He's like, well, let me encourage you. It is going to be so good for you to, to, to pray. And notice what he says, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, these first three words, they're all somewhat similar. I'm sure you know the differences there, but supplications is, is our needs and our, and our wants, our prayer requests, you could say, that we come to him. But it is, is coming to God out of a sense of need. That's the idea. Bring those things to God. It's our supplications. But also, he says just prayers, which is a general term for prayer, but it highlights the reverence for God. Speaking to God is a reverent thing. And then you have intercessions there, which is, is standing in the gap and praying for others, isn't it? It's the same um, idea in the word there um, that, that is used of Christ and the Holy Spirit interceding for us. He is our, our advocate, and we sort of are an advocate for others when we pray uh, for them. And all those things incorporate prayer, don't they? We, we bring prayer requests for ourselves. We, we bring prayer requests for others. But I love what he says at the end, but we are also to be giving of thanks, he says. It's not necessarily hard to give thanks to God, is it? It should be pretty easy. We have a pretty long list of things that we could give God thanks for. Next month will be Thanksgiving. If you've been here any length of time, you know that we've incorporated a Thanksgiving service where we just actually corporately share what we're thankful for. It's only one Sunday a month that we do that, so we probably could take the entire time. If each one of us came with a list, there'd be no end. But we only have the time to share one thing each. What are you thankful for? It's such a sweet time. It encourages and blesses my heart. It makes us look back and see God has been at work. God has been faithful. God has been a provider. He is so worthy of our praise, and we want to give thanks to him. But I, I was reading the book of Daniel this week. That was my uh, reading. Fabulous book. Rob's, I think, favorite book for some reason. I don't know. Um, Rob Daniel Hall. But anyway, um, Daniel, think about this now. Daniel is a captive in Babylon. Okay, his homeland was conquered. He's an Israelite. His land is conquered. The temple's looted. He's taken captive back, back to Babylon, and he's given a new name, a pagan name. We're not going to call you Daniel. We're going to call you Belteshazzar. I would have been like, can I just have belt? Give me belt. What's this Belteshazzar thing? But anyway, he gives him this long, complicated uh, name. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, and 
he's there for succeeding empires. He's not only there in captivity. Um, obviously, the Lord blesses him, and he kind of becomes a, a co-ruler. He's a wise man there. But he's not just through the time of Babylon, but even the following empire of the Persians and the Medes. And under King Darius, when King Darius comes in, by this point, the other wise men, they don't like Daniel. And they want to accuse Daniel. So they trick the king into, into kind of making this little proclamation. Listen, king, we think you should not let anyone pray to any other god for 30 days. No other god but, but your gods. And the whole point was to, to, get, to get Daniel because they knew he was a man of prayer. And so the king signs that unbeknownst that this would harm Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, here's Daniel's response. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He didn't change his routine, in other words. He knew exactly what the writing said, but he went home, kept his curtains open, faced Jerusalem, and prayed not once, not twice, three times. But you notice what he prayed for? Oh, Lord, I hope you take this proclamation away. Oh, Lord, I hope this is... No, no, no. He gave thanks. He's been in captivity for years at this point, and he's giving thanks to God. If only we would be willing to give thanks beyond our little worlds, of our little tiny worlds of like, oh, this has happened, this happened, and we just end up being kind of complainers. We can bring supplications. He is our Father. He is compassionate. He knows what we're going through, but... He really wants us to see the good things in here and to give thanks to him. And Daniel's able to uh, do that. And Paul, going back to our our passage here, is very specific. We're to bring prayers and intercessions and supplications and giving of thanks for all men. Did you notice that? For all men. Which brings to the second point. Not only should prayer be first place, prayer should be for all people. Look at Again, halfway through verse 1, giving of thanks be made for all men. And then verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, I know as we read these verses, this is hard for some people. You look at this and go, really? All men? I mean, let's think about the word all men. I mean, Kevin, you don't know my coworkers, how hostile they are to the gospel how they blaspheme Christ. You you don't know what they're like. You don't know what my parents were like. They were cruel and unloving. You think about things like Hamas. And yet he says, pray for all men. Pray for all men. Why? Because prayer is not to be limited. It's not exclusive. We pray for everyone not just for those that we like, not just for those in our family and our little circles. And particularly, we should pray for the wicked, unredeemed men and women who need salvation. It's evangelistic prayer that that Paul has in mind. Because notice what he includes. Kings and all who are in authority. Now, that's really interesting. I I know that, that, that there were people who had a hard time with the transition here. A king coming in. You got to think about who Paul is writing about, who was reigning in his time. Emperor Nero. Nero would cover Christians in wax, 
tie them to stakes in his garden and light them on fire to light his garden and walk through to just enjoy the screams of the saints. Wasn't happening quite yet at this point, but it was to happen not soon after this. And what's interesting is, and fascinating to me is Paul doesn't say, now I want you to pray for kings and, and some of them need removing. So make sure you pray that God, you know, just strike Nero dead. That would be a good prayer. Strike him dead, take him out, remove him, do what you need to do, God. He doesn't pray that. He says, pray for, pray for them. Pray for all men, pray for all kings and authorities. And it leaves us this open world. Okay, I pray, what do I pray? And that's a hard thing. We had questions coming to us about that with the whole Hamas and Israel thing. What do I pray? Where do I go? What should I pray for here? Well, let me cover first why. Why should we pray for kings and all who are in authority? Hopefully, you already know this question, uh, this answer. First reason is that it's God who appoints the kings and the rulers of this world. That's why. That person is in that place because God has appointed them. And you might say, and you might look at the world and say, no, actually because they, there was a, a fraud and they miscounted the ballots. We're still talking about that nonsense. I would say, actually, God appointed them. Romans 13.1 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority and resists the ordinance of he resists the author, sorry ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. You know, it was so timely. I, it was just my normal Bible reading this week, folks. I didn't bring Daniel. I'm going back to Daniel again because I was just in it, going, "This is great." Because in Daniel chapter two, it's a fascinating chapter, by the way. I hope you you've read through the book of of Daniel. But Daniel is is faced with an issue here because the king has had a dream. And the king has had this wacky dream, and it's this image of this statue, and he just cannot figure it out. Okay, But he doesn't tell us in that. He just tells us that he has a dream, and he goes to his astrologers and his wise men, his sorcerers and the Chaldeans, and he says, all right, I've had a dream, and I just need you to interpret the dream. And they say, great, yeah, no problem. We'll do that, no problem. Tell us the dream. He goes, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. Uh, you tell me the dream, and what the interpretation is. And they go, <laughs> okay, that doesn't work that way. You gotta tell us a dream. And, and then we give the interpretation. He goes, I knew it, you're a bunch of frauds. You don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm killing you all. They're like, well, what you're asking is impossible. You, know, you tell me the dream and I'll give you the interpretation. He's like, no. So don't get confused with what happens with um, the, the, the Pharaoh and his dream with Joseph. That, that, that dream is given. This guy, not telling the dream. Tell me the dream and the interpretation. And so he's so mad, he sends out an edict to start killing all of his wise men. Daniel hears about the edict because he's one of the wise men. He goes to the captain of the guards, I think his name is Arioch, something like that. And he goes up to him and says, what is going on? Why, why this, this you know, hurried de decree? What's, what's happening? And so he explains to him. So Daniel says, let me go to the king. And so the king gives him time. And that night, Daniel goes to God and prays, and God gives him a vision of the dream. It's given to him in, in the evening. And so Daniel, when that is given to him, I want you to hear what he says to God after he, it's revealed to him. He hasn't told anyone else. He just gets it. In Daniel 2, verses 20 to 21, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons Listen to this. He removes kings and raises up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Why, why, is, why is he saying that? Why does he say, oh, he's the one that removes kings? What was this dream, this dream about? The dream was about the four succeeding empires that will follow Babylon. And it blows Daniel's mind. Not only would there be Babylon, this great, great kingdom, but the, Meds, the Medes and the Persians would follow him, and then the Greek empire, and then the Roman, and then finally uh, a mixed, weak empire at the end, a, a future empire. Four empires that would follow, and it, it blows his mind. He's thinking if God knows the empires of history before they happen, then he must be the one appointing them. He, he removes king. He puts them up. He's the one doing all of this. In fact, appointed kings and rulers are in their positions ultimately to do the will of God. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. That's why Babylon conquered Israel in the first place. Remember, Israel's a mess. They, they're, they're falling into idolatry. They're worshiping false gods. And he says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use Babylon. I'm going to use him. Did, did the king of Babylon have any clue? No. He's like, there's a kingdom I want to attack, and there's everything I want to conquer. So he comes in to conquer. But absolutely, it was God's will that he would do that. He was using Babylon. One more example from Daniel, because there's a great example uh, of this later in Daniel chapter for another amazing chapter because King Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. He's just a dreaming dude, okay? He has another dream about this tree, and this tree um, is commanded by watchers from heaven to be chopped down, all the branches cut off, off the leaves cut off, chopped down to the stump, and this bronze band kind of being put around the stump. Very confusing. In fact, I've got to read part of it to you because of what happens in, in, this, in the passage is amazing. Uh, this is the watcher from heaven, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots and the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts. All you have, it's, 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 talking about the tree, 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 it's, it's branches, it's roots, it's this. And all of a sudden, it changes to a hymn. And let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the field. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. It's an incredible dream. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what this is, the purpose of this dream is, what it's about. He doesn't get it at all. And the purpose of the dream is given in verse 17. It says this, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. It gives it to whomever he wills and sets over it the lowest of men. The whole reason this is going to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, is so that they will know that it's God who actually rules in the kingdom of men. Doesn't matter how great a kingdom is, God is the one in charge. And that's what happens later in chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over his vast empire. He's sitting out on his balcony and he's, oh, look at this great kingdom I've built for myself. I'm pretty hot stuff. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is all because of me. And in that hour, we're told that his mind became like an animal and he did eat grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like the eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And after seven years, his understanding returns to him and then he blesses the most high God. In chapter four, verse 35, he says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does what he wants. That's what he's saying. He's God. And no one can say, well, what were you doing here? Why have you done this? He does according to his will. And then his kingdom was restored to him. His nobles, his counselors all returned to him. And the chapter ends with these words from the very great and powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Because Nebuchadnezzar says, because I experienced it. I walked in pride. I thought I was everything. And then I realized, oh, actually, it's the king of heaven that I sit under, and he does whatever he wants through me. Incredible. All that to say, whether you like it or not, your king, you need to pray for him, for all who are in authority, because it's God who places the authority over us. So we should pray for kings and all who are authority, because that's God putting them there. But secondly, what should we pray for? That's a hard, harder thing, isn't it? Well, well, then what do I pray for? How do I pray? Can I first just say, something, and I honestly mean this in the gentlest of way, okay, so just understand my heart here, is that if there's anger and hatred, that won't let you pray. You have got to take that to the Lord. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hatred against what's happening in the world. We can't have it against the world system, but not against those that are captive by it. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field, and so we need to, we need to get rid of anger. We need to get rid of hate, and I just received, again, this is God's timing, this week, the Christian Institute Week of Prayer, which actually is the, uh, for the week of the 5th to the 11th of November. But I thought this very interesting. I turned to Sunday, and here's what it says. Pray for those in authority. And it quotes 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, where we are. We pray for those in authority for the good of our fellow citizens and for the freedom to live out and share the gospel. You want to know what to pray for? There's a perfect little encapsulated phrase. Pray for that. He lists some things. You can pray for King Charles, the minister, first ministers, that God would bless them, give them wisdom, insight, integrity. That's good. That God would raise up fearless political leaders who seek to do what's right. You can pray for that. That our lawmakers will strive to restrain evil and promote what's good. Certainly, we want to pray for that. That God would protect and sustain believers working in public service. Those are great, a great few things, isn't it? But we, we would really struggle to pray for any of those things. We have sort of animosity and hatred and anger stewing within us. You just won't be able to, to, to do it. But listen what it says. Those are great reasons there, but I think the scripture here gives us the best reason of all. Why should we pray for kings and all who are in authority? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. What does this mean? What is, are, we, are we just to pray for quiet, uh, middle-class lives, <laughs> uh, free from, from persecution? You know, let me just sort of hide out over here in, in the corner. Is that the point here? I'm going to tell you, no, because 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we're living godly lives, you know, we can expect to suffer persecution. So it's not that prayer. What is it speaking of here? It speaks of praying for peaceful conditions in which Christians could live out exemplary lives that would draw people to them for the purpose of the gospel, drawing them to Christ and his word. Remember, we are the testimony. We are the light, and I pray that we would still have the freedom to practice those things and believe those things and live out our lives so that people can see the exemplary conduct of those who follow Christ. 1 Peter 2.13, 
very well-known verse about a similar thing. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So the therefore okay, is important. We're to submit ourselves to all the ordinances, and he goes on to talk about authorities, but the therefore is there for a reason. You have to go back a, a bit. Look at the passage prior to this in verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So have an honorable conduct amongst unbelievers. So they look at that and actually bring glory to God. Therefore, he says, you need to submit yourself to the ordinance of men. In other words, when we have a proper understanding of the authority of rulers, then our, our attitudes toward them should be one of peace. Our peaceful conduct will be one of godliness and reverence. And we want unbelievers to see that, not anger, not hatred, not malicious speech. We can hate the evil world system. That, that's hostile to God. But we should not hate those that are captive by it. They are the mission field. And you know what? And even if they were your enemies, you probably don't even need to say it. Jesus tells us what to do. With our enemies, Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. You guys know it. You know, we're just to be a peaceable, peaceable people who are, who are actively uh, praying for this lost world and prayer for an, even the evil and the wicked men in this world. When we do that, it mirrors the heart of our Heavenly Father who makes the sun rise on the, even the wicked and send rain to even on the wicked, what it says like at the end of verse Matthew 5.45 there. Right? He, he, he does that. Even, even the wicked get the rain. Even they get the sun. God is good to all of them. So when we pray for them, we need to show that we are indeed sons of our Father through the, the manner in which we pray. Charles Spurgeon said this, earnest intercession will be sure to bring love with it. I do not believe you can hate a man for whom you habitually pray. And he brings us into the church as well. If you dislike any brother, Christian, pray for him doubly, not only for his sake, but for your own, that you may be cured of prejudice and saved from all unkind feeling. Hmm. You know, when we make prayer first in our lives, when prayer is centered around praying for others, especially uh, the lost, that is when, okay, that is when prayer is pleasing, which is the third point. And you see that in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's pleasing. We see the word acceptable uh, there. It, it signifies acceptable in the sense of what is pleasing and welcome to God. In fact, the Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, the ESV, translate acceptable as pleasing. I think the NAT uses welcome. Prayer like this, he says, is welcome. It's, it's pleasing to God. And doesn't that make you think, gosh, I wonder how many times I pray that's not very welcome. <laughs> God's like, oh, that one stunk. <laughs> Try that again. Prayer is pleasing when we pray for these things. The salvation of lost souls is always welcomed by God. And this is why, because it reflects God's desire. Look at what it has, says in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, we do have to understand what Paul is teaching here and what he's not. I think some people go to this passage to teach universalism, and that is the idea that everyone 
uh, will be saved because, after all, uh, God desires all men to be saved. Well, we know that that's, that's not the case because of what Paul himself teaches, of what the rest of Scripture teaches. In fact, Paul, look what he says to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. If they continue to be enemies of the cross, their end is destruction is is what he says. But the destruction spoken of here is not annihilation is what a lot of people think as well. They're just going to be an end. You know, it's just people are just done. They're just annihilated. But the destruction here is, is also called the second death. And it's described in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, we see a great white throne judgment. In verses 13 to 15, it says this, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You might read this and look at this and say, well, it's a lake of fire. It's called the second death, so it does sound like destruction to me. But before the unredeemed of humanity are cast into the lake of fire here, the devil, the false prophet, the beast of of Revelation, they are cast in. And look what it says about them in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's not annihilation. It's not destruction as we understand it today, but it's eternal separation from God, and it's torment. It's eternal punishment. And many, sadly, many men and women will end up there. We know that from the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus spoke of the way to salvation as the narrow gate. He says this in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. It is a sad truth that all men will not be saved. In fact, many will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's not what Paul is teaching. He's not teaching universalism here. So what is he saying? He says this, if if God desires all men to be saved, and yet we know that not all of them are going to be saved, then how is it that God does not get what he desires? He's God. How does he not get what he wants here? Well, I think what we learn from this is that God's desire and his will are separate things. Listen, folks, I, I could sit at my desk to study during a day, and the sun will come out, and the birds will be chirping, and you guys start texting that you're going to the beach, and my desire is to go to the beach. My desire is to fold this stuff up and say, forget this, guys, I'm going to the beach. You're on your own Sunday. But I will myself, I will myself to stay put. Do you see the difference? God has desires just as we do, but he has a will of decree that is different, that fulfills his ultimate purpose. My purpose is, no, i got to feed my flock and then I'll guilt them for going to the beach. But I, I, will, I will stay in it. That's the point. And I think theologians make the distinction between God's revealed will and his secret will or his, his will of decree. I mean, you could flip it around and you could say, certainly God doesn't desire that, that sin exists. That's not his desire. Yet it's clear that it, it does exist. 
but its existence must, must somehow fulfill his ultimate purposes here. And yet at the same time, he's not the author of sin. Ultimately, men will end up in that lake of fire because of their willful rejection of him. That's, that's, that will be why. I mean, Jesus displayed that desire for his people, that desire for Jerusalem. In, in Matthew 23, 37, he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus' desire, yet he knows where they're in. I, I want to gather you together, but you're just not willing. I think Paul's main point is this. When, when we pray for the lost, and even those who we deem as completely unworthy of saving, and let's, be, let's face it, we do deem that sometimes, we reflect the desire of God who desires that all would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. To come to the knowledge of the truth is salvation. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is salvation, coming to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires that men come to the knowledge of his Son. That's what he desires, and so be saved. So prayer is pleasing because it reflects the heart of God. Evangelistic prayer in particular, as we pray for the lost, the unredeemed of mankind, it reflects his heart that desires all men to be saved. I don't like what's happening over in Israel. I don't like what's happening in the Ukraine. But we also know that there are men and women involved in these conflicts all over that they need saving. They're deceived in all kinds of places. And so we should pray for salvation to come to some of these people here, right? Let me give you one more point here. If prayer is pleasing, we also need to remember that prayer is a privilege. It is a privilege to, to pray. And then Verses 5 and 6, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So my prayer for, for kings and for all who are in authority is that they know that there's one God. That's my prayer. That they know that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That there's not many ways to heaven. My prayer is that they come to know Jesus that whoever they think is God, whoever they might be worshiping of as God, that we would be able to show them that, no, 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 there is only one God and there's only one way to God, and it's Jesus Christ. Remember, Hebrews talks about Jesus being the mediator of a better covenant that's built on better promises. He's the mediator of that, the go-between. And when we teach that, Christianity really is exclusive in its claims because it, there is only one way. And we, we know the way. I know it sounds arrogant to people, but God has made his way clear in Scripture. But that one way, and here's the beautiful thing, is open to all because he gave himself a ransom for all. I love it. A ransom is what is given in exchange for another as the price of his redemption. Jesus gave himself, that's the price, for sinners like you and me. And when we pray for salvation of others, we're praying that they come to a knowledge of the truth that they're sinners and that they need saving, and Jesus died to save them. And that was testified to in due time, meaning this, that the coming of Christ into the world as a ransom price for, the man, for mankind testified to the fact that God desires all men to be saved. That's the testimony. Well, how do you know God desires? He sent his son. 
He gave his son as a ransom for all. His testimony of his desire, and it's clear. And so Paul is saying here that his divine commission from the Lord is based upon those truths for himself. Look at verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and, and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel to, wait for it, Gentiles. Now listen, that was crazy then. They thought it all was for the Jews. Actually, after all, the Jews are God's people. And all of a sudden, no, I want you to take this to Gentiles. I mean, we have to remember that, that there was hostility that existed be, between Jew and, and Gentile. In fact, you just made me think of this. You ladies are studying Ephesians. Um, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you. But Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, right? He says, remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh, verse 11, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the, uh, the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that, are, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers uh, from the co covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, there's a dividing wall of hostility, he says. It's been broken down by the blood of Christ. And Paul is saying, I have, I have the privilege of taking this amazing news to the Gentiles. And who would have thought? And we have a privilege as well to pray for and reach out to everyone who needs to hear the gospel. There's no place for hate or anger against others. There's no place for self-righteousness. There's no place for exclusivists, as evidently existed in the Ephesian church. We pray for all men. That's the heart of God. And I think God uses prayer to, to get us in line with his heart. I was reading um, a, a thing by John Piper this week, and he said this, prayer is God's way of bringing our priorities into line with his. God wills to make great things the consequence of our prayers when our prayers are the consequence of his great purposes. I love that. When we're praying according to his purposes, then he wants to make great things the consequences of our prayers. Incredible thought. What, what is God's desire? What are his purposes for leaving us here on earth? I mean, it's that way we might be a, a global life-saving force. Isn't that it? <laughs> That's us. So to pray for all people, to proclaim the gospel to all people, we make the priority of, of prayer, our, our mission, then we align ourselves with God's great purposes. That's what he, he wants from us. I told you earlier that we, we skipped the time of corporate prayer because I wanted to save it to the end. And we're going to do that actually now in a couple of ways. I think I gave you plenty to pray for. There's a lot you could pray for. I'll let you determine what you want to pray for. But maybe you would like prayer. Maybe you'd like to have some prayer. And I'm going to be up here to pray for anyone who would like to come up. And the rest of you, just, just break into groups wherever you are and um, pray through whatever the Lord's laid on your heart through this. But we, we need to remember that outside these walls, there is a world of lost people. And we can't go everywhere. We can't be everywhere. But we have prayer, and we can take that to God. And so let's let our hearts be free from animosity, free from anger, free from anything that would, would, would hinder us from praying for the wickedness of the wicked, because even Paul said, I'm the chief. I'm the chief. And you know what I think about? 
Remember Paul was standing next to Stephen when he was being stoned, and, and Stephen threw up a prayer at the end, didn't he? Similar to Jesus, Father, forgive him. Don't you just wonder if Paul's salvation wasn't in some way the result of an evangelistic prayer thrown out by Stephen? He was a wicked man. Let's pray for the lost. Pray in groups as you feel led. I think the worship team's going to come up and, and play a little bit, and, and then Kofi will close us and lead us into a time of, of worship to close. And I'll be up here to pray with anyone that would like us.